Okay, we read Hebrews 6 from verse 9 to verse 20. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abram, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us this hope we have as an anchor for the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 9, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So this is one of the reasons um, why I think it's right to say that the people he speaks about falling away are not elect, they are not people who've been truly saved. They partook of the Holy Spirit, they um, experienced something of Christianity, they experienced something of the power of the age to come, but they haven't fully experienced salvation. Because he says to these people, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. So I do think if God really saves you, if God gives you a new heart, if God makes you a new person, you will not fall away like the people he warns you against in Hebrews 6. But that doesn't mean you can rest easy because you can trick yourself. You can, um, you can think, oh, okay, I'm one of those... Uh, yeah, or you can say I'm one of those. Oh, I've been saved, so I'll never fall away. That's that's not the way to read it. This is put as an encouragement, but it's not to take away the warning. He still says you must eat the word of God because if you fall away, then you prove that you don't have the things accompanying salvation, and the end is still the same for you. So, so once again, instead of getting caught up in the theology of, you know, can this happen, can this not happen, take heed of the warning, but then also take heed of the encouragement and the promises which we read. So he says to these people, I'm convinced of better things. I'm sure of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. Now, of course, you can't just 
claim that promise for yourself. You can't just say, oh, God's convinced of better things concerning me. There's a reason why he was concerned of, uh, convinced of better things concerning these people. He says um, in verse 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He's saying, there's much evidence in your life that God has really changed you. God isn't just going to forget you. Um, so when he says to these people, I'm convinced of better things concerning you, he's not saying it to people who are living in the world or living in sin, or just saying, oh yeah, no, God will keep you to the end. He's saying it to people who've been running the race, who've been fighting the fight, and he says, because I see you've been fighting the fight, you've been running the race, therefore, I'm pretty sure, I'm convinced that you won't fall away, that you will persevere to the end. Nevertheless, you must make sure that you do persevere to the end. Um, so, what are the marks which give the guy this encouragement, uh, this confidence concerning these people? He says, your work and your love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, their faith, which is evidenced by the deeds which they do. James says that faith without works is dead. Um, or, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by what I do. It's easy to say I have faith, but the proof is not in the saying, the proof is in how you live your life. And he's saying these people were living a life that showed much evidence of being true Christians. And what was the work that they were doing? Well, he was he's specifically speaking about the love which you have toward his name, towards the name of God. Firstly, the love you have towards Christ. Um, firstly, your love towards his name a passion for Christ, uh, a zeal to see the name of Christ honored in the world. But this also practically works out in practical love towards the saints. He says, the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, the love that you have for Christ, the love that you have towards the name of Christ cannot remain just something that you experience in a time of praise and worship. It can't be just feelings. It can't be just um, times of extravagant worship or times which you feel caught up into the third heavens. It must work out practically in love towards the saints. Love towards the body of Christ. 1 John 5 clearly says that or 1 John 4 or both of them but it clearly says that the one born of God loves those who have been born of God the one born of God loves the children of God um, one of the things which God does 
when He changes your heart, when He makes you a new creature in Christ, is that He gives you a love for other people who are part of the family of God. He He works a love for you towards people whom you would not naturally love towards people you don't naturally have something in common with but because you are in Christ with them you love them Um, but this love isn't just nice feelings this love works out practically he says in ministering in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints taking care of the saints, caring for the saints. In the New Testament, it definitely includes practical, physical, material things. Looking after the poor saints, helping those in need. And of course, it also includes spiritual ministry. Um, Reprimanding the people you see who are veering off the path. Praying for people who are struggling, coming alongside people, walking a road with them, rebuking and encouraging and admonishing and exhorting, all these different things. This is all part of ministering to the saints. And I've said it before, but I will say it again, that many of you come from a church background where you just go and sit and the guy broadcasts from the front and you just take in and then you've had church but you must understand if you are in Christ, if you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really have been saved then you should minister you should be working for the spiritual welfare of other people you should be caring for the saints, you should be encouraging you should be busy in this great work of building up the body of Christ that doesn't mean you must get on a pulpit and preach, but there are so many ways in which you can be involved and you must be involved in the lives of believers in um, in building up people we have different gifts not everyone must minister in the same way definitely not everyone should not minister in the same way but everyone should minister. Minister simply means to serve. Today people say they have a ministry and it's, it's, they think that means the same as being the minister, the minister of a country. It means I'm the big boss. But that's not what ministry means at all. It means to serve. At least in Afrikaans we speak of the dibedinang. Um, you must serve. Dibedin. Um, so we must, everyone who is saved, everyone who is a true, true Christian must be serving the body of Christ. You serve Christ by serving the body of Christ. Of course you must love the world as well, but if you look in the New Testament, first priority is to love the children of God, to build up the children of God, to, to help the children of God both materially and physically and spiritually as the need arises. But but we must be on the lookout. How can I build up the body of Christ? What can I do to further the cause of Christ on this earth? What can I do to build up saints? What can I do to encourage Christians? You must have that mindset. If you don't have that mindset, then there's something seriously wrong.
Um, because he says this is the big evidence for, for him. This is the big reason why he's convinced of better things concerning these people, that they minister to the saints, they care for the saints, and they are putting in the hard work to build up the body of Christ. It is not always pretty. Sometimes it's um, sometimes it's more like changing nappies on a baby than giving a university lecture, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, sometimes when people have just become Christians and they're babies, then it's still quite messy. And always where people are involved, there are misunderstandings, there are difficulties. It's not easy being in relationship with people. It is not, everyone doesn't always see things the same way. Everyone is not on the same wavelength. Everyone um, isn't as spiritually mature as you might be. And then it's often difficult. Um, so what I'm saying is this this ministry it's not always this clean clinical thing that people think it is it's it's real people and it's often tough but these people were doing it and they were persevering in it because he says in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints so the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about them because they want to sort of it seems like they want to go back to Moses or something but he's still encouraged about them because they are still serving the body of Christ they are still loving Christians they are still helping Christians um, and that is why he isn't just writing them off He's, he's still sure of something better but he's warning them that they must continue they must cling to Christ they must hope in Christ alone you wanted to say something uh, I was going to just ask um, in all of this it's emphasizing ministry and Nowadays, um, and people will choose instead of speaking the word when they should, instead of correcting or giving guidance or counsel or whatever, they will serve by going and serving at the soup kitchen, which doesn't serve mm. the saints anyway. Mm. It is something that's seen as good works, mm. serving the poor, mm. but it's not serving the saints. Yes. Yeah. Saint, yeah. Saint means heilige. And that's the word that the New Testament uses. Yeah. Um, yes, it's good and necessary and important to reach out to the poor and to the poor lost in the world as well. But yes, if people are using that as an excuse for not doing the spiritual ministry, then it is not right. Absolutely. Um, 
I am very sure that most of the focus here was physical needs. The, the early church was poor and uh, there was a lot of, um, lot of charity in the early church among the saints. Um, but it does include the spiritual ministry and, and keeping somebody's tummy full when his soul is going to hell isn't loving. So, um, so when one sees problems in the church, one shouldn't just ignore it and say, I'm going to help at the soup kitchen. You should speak into the situation. You should deal with that situation. Absolutely. Now he says in verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Um, These are two verses which I would love to broadcast into every Western church because it is so necessary. Even though he is convinced of better things, he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. So what is he saying? He says, each one of you individually. No corporate thing here. Each one of you individually must show the same diligence. Must persevere diligently to the end. <coughs> Almost everyone has this theology that when you meet Christ, it's like the, this honeymoon period and it's all wonderful and then you're all zealous and then sort of real life kicks in again and then you become sort of a bit cold and lukewarm and then you just go on like that for the rest of your life. But that's not what the New Testament speaks about. The New Testament speaks about being diligent to the end. Now, of course... Some things which were brand new to you at the beginning, you will get used to it in a certain sense. So in certain senses you might not have the same excitement right to the end, but he's saying you must show the same diligence. Persevere until the end. And and diligence means to not just run to the end, it means to run with a purpose. It means to be Precise, it means to make sure. It's not just this, just run, run with a purpose, make sure, be diligent. Apply yourself and make sure. Um, He said we want each one of you to show the same diligence. The idea is to persevere to the end. He says, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. To not become despondent, stop running the race, and go sit alongside the track. To not um, just sort of give over. And lots of people actually do this. You keep on going to church, you keep on believing the right things, but in your heart you've let go of the promises of God. You have 
you've said that, that this New Testament Christianity isn't really for today. It's not really for us. Um, I'll just take this version we have in our church and go on with that. Um, it's easy to to sell out in your heart. It's easy to let go of the hope and the faith in the promises um, in your heart because oh, when you read it the first time, it sounds so exciting and you think this is how it's going to work out and then you just go and then it doesn't work out like you think it works out and then you say, oh, well, the promises aren't really true. But you don't say that openly. You just sort of say it in your heart. You just say, "I'm go-, you, like Peter, you say, I go back fishing. Um, but ultimately, I still, I still do the church thing. I still do the Christian thing. But I've just, I've just let go of that belief in the promises. I've just let go of that hope. I'm sort of just living out my days now. And yeah, but you don't openly give up. You just sort of in your heart you give up and you keep on doing the thing. But but there's no hope anymore. And he's saying that is what he does not want these people to do. He was he does not want these people to let go of the hope that we have in Christ. Um, he wants them to stand firm, to stand fully assured of the hope until the end. And how are you going to stand fully assured? By being diligent, by showing the same diligence, by persevering to the end by actually obeying God, by doing what he says, and by serving the body of Christ, that will establish and keep your hope firm till the end. People might think, reading all kinds of books about arguments for and against God, that will keep my faith intact. But the biblical way to keep your faith intact is to show diligence, to diligently serve Christ and to serve the body of Christ to the end. He says in verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish. So that you will not be sluggish. You see, it's easy in Western Christianity to become sluggish because almost everyone is sluggish. I mean, I know I harp on a lot about Western Christianity, but Western Christianity is in a bad shape. Um, It's almost... If you'll excuse the metaphor, it's like a bunch of snails and the moment that someone picks up lizard paste and they say, oh, you're going to quickly come slow down with the rest of us. Um, so there's a lot of sluggishness in, in Christian churches in the West today. There are very few people who follow Christ all out, who really take this word and run with the word, who, who believe the promises, who serve God, who give themselves wholly to Christ. Um, it's sort of, okay, yeah, I've done the repentance thing and, and I do my little part, or I don't even do my little part in church, but, and that's okay. But that's not, that's not okay. Don't be sluggish. And if you have slacked off the pace, then pick up the pace again. If you have been sluggish, if you have become sluggish, then stop being sluggish, then repent and start running the race with diligence, with fervor, with zeal again. Um, It's no use crying over all the years that have been wasted and it is 
definitely not the right thing to say, oh well, I've wasted so many years, now I'm just going to sit despondently and waste the rest of my years. No. If you realize that you've been sluggish, then stop being sluggish and pick up the pace. He says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, the promises are true, but the promises have to be inherited. Not everyone is going to get the promises. Only those who go into the kingdom one day will inherit the promises. The promises are open and available to all, but only some will share in the promises. But how do you inherit the promise? By speaking words of faith? No, you inherit the promises through faith and patience. Many people like the idea of inheriting the promises through faith, but when it says faith and patience, then it becomes less tickling on the ear. So God's promises are true. All He's promised in this New Testament is true, and His promises are true today. But many of the promises are about a future hope. And those promises you don't just get overnight, you inherit it by faith and patience. Although the promise is true, it doesn't immediately come to you. You get what is promised by believing and persevering, by being patient, by waiting for the promise. And often it's a fight, it is a struggle when you see all the darkness in the world, when you see all the the confusion, I read in a magazine someone gave me about, uh, they just mentioned that in one of George Barnard's newest studies, he said 25% of born-again Christians in America don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, of course, none of them are born again, but they claim to be born again according to the way that people think today, they are born again because somewhere they said a prayer, somewhere they made a decision, somewhere they had a feeling. But um, all I'm really saying is there's a lot of darkness, a lot of doubt, a lot of confusing things which come in being patient and waiting for the promises doesn't mean lying back and just waiting for it to happen. It means persevering, going through a fight, going through a struggle, and going all the way through the struggle until the end. This is this is what the New Testament is all about. Persecution, trouble, but persevering until the end to receive the rich reward. So, the promises are to be inherited through faith and patience. And what often happens, like I said, is that at the beginning you believe the promise and then it doesn't come very quickly and then you stop believing the promise. Don't let that happen. His promises are true, but you must wait, you must believe, and you must persevere in faith. And then the promises will be yours. So there is... a. A fight of faith that we have to fight to inherit the promises. Like I said, uh, specifically the future kingdom promises, uh, the, 
the promises about the glory in heaven that awaits us. To get there, you first have to persevere here on earth. But this also works out in some of the promises that is given for today in the New Testament where you have to take him at his word and things don't immediately just come right. But you have to keep on believing him, keep on doing things his way and then you will see the promise coming to fulfillment in your life. You must be patient in Christianity. You must be willing to persevere. But then he gives this wonderful, it's just the most magnificent passage about why we should persevere. And if you get this, it's amazing. Verse 13 says, For when God made the promise to Abram, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. This statement starts with a four, so, so he's giving the reason why we should patiently believe. He says, the reason is when God made a promise to Abram, when God made the promise to Abram, God didn't just promise Abram, he swore. And he says, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now that's an amazing statement. God had no one greater than God to swear by. Because when you make an oath, when you swear, you don't swear by your cat or by your child. You always swear by someone greater. And Jesus said, don't swear by this or that because you haven't got the power over it. But the idea is always when someone made an oath, they make an oath by something bigger than themselves. But there's nothing bigger than God. And then God made an oath by himself. He swore by himself. Um, And this comes from Genesis 22 verse 16. Because in verse 14 then he quotes Genesis 22 verse 17. Um, I think Genesis 22 verse 16 says something, I swear by myself, says the Lord. And then verse 14, that I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So God, when he made this promise to Abram, he swore by himself. And what happened to Abram? Well, verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he, that is Abram, obtained the promise. God swore to Abram that God would bless Abram, that God would multiply Abram, that God would make Abram a father of many nations. Did this happen overnight? No. In fact, Abram saw very little of it in his own life. There was that episode where he was, where Sarah said to him, well, take my maid and have a child through her. Sort of help God, you know. Abram was, I think, 86 by that time. He still didn't have a child. 
And he had a moment of doubt. And then Ishmael was born. But Ishmael wasn't the promised son. And only 13 years later, when Abram was 99, God said to him, at this time next year, Sarah will have a child. And then when Abram was 100 years old, the child was born. But many years before that, God had already promised to Abram that Abram would be blessed. Abram had to wait many years to get the promises. And in many respects, the promises made to Abram were only fulfilled after his death. So he had to patiently wait. Decades and decades passed between the time when God promised Abram and the time of the fulfillment. But, what is the big thing? The one who made the promise to him is faithful. It doesn't matter that there were decades in which Abram said, my wife still doesn't have a child. Later he said, well my wife is way past childbearing age now. I mean, if there was a child on the way, the child should have been here many years ago. It's physically impossible now for her to have a child. But still, that didn't matter. As hard as it might have been for Abram to persevere in faith there, that didn't matter because the one who spoke the promises to him is faithful. And that's that's what this passage is about. The God who made the promise to Abram is faithful, he's true, he cannot lie, and he even swore to Abram. So the promise was true. Now there's a beautiful illustration of this um, that Brother Jung relates. He says when he was in China, in jail, I think it was in 1997, his legs were beaten up, broken, his, his knees were broken, he couldn't walk. He was in absolute pain and agony and had been tortured for a long time and God said to him, walk out of this prison. Walk out of this maximum security prison that you are sitting in. Now, it's difficult enough to walk out of a maximum security prison when you've got legs. Um, When you can't walk, it's really difficult. And he said what came to him then, and that was so beautiful to me, he said, when he basically said to God, but I mean my my knees or my legs, I can't walk. Um, God said to him, he says, God said to him, the prison that you are in is real. But my word is the truth. It's not denying the reality. It's not this Buddhist thing of uh, just saying, oh, this isn't the real reality. God says, no, there where you are, it's real. Abram's wife was past childbearing age. Her womb was as good as dead. But God's truth, God's word is a higher reality than the reality that you live in. This reality is real. 
it, it might be real that whatever's been going on in your life for years, it's been going on, but God's promise is more real. Because heaven and earth shall pass away, but the words of Jesus Christ shall never pass away. Scripture speaks about God who calls the things which are not as if they are. He spoke the world into being and the world was there. And when he makes a promise, he has absolute power and authority to fulfill that promise. So there are really two things. The one is that God is truthful, faithful. What he does, he intends to do. And he is able to do. He has got the power to do what he has promised. Because sometimes someone will make a promise to you and this person really intends to keep this promise, but in the end he's not able to keep this promise. He's faithful, but he's unable to do what he has promised. Other people are able to do it and they just don't do it. They are unfaithful. But God is both faithful and able. So, where do you go when you struggle with faith, when you're struggling about the promises? Where do you go? You go to the character of God. It's not, oh, I've been praying this so long and nothing has been happening. Or this and this is the reality of my life. It is, can God lie? That's the question. Can God lie? Has God said this, and can he lie? If he has said it, then it doesn't matter what has happened, it will come to pass. Because he will not lie. He is faithful. His character is one of faithfulness, of trustworthiness. And the bad thing about unbelief is that unbelief really questions the character of God. That's the big sin of unbelief. Unbelief is such an ugly sin because unbelief is really saying God is not trustworthy. It's not, I'm too small, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's God is not trustworthy. That's the big and the ugly thing about unbelief. If God has said something, and I say if God has said something because many people say God has said something which God has not said. Being presumptuous isn't going to help you. Clinging to a promise which God hasn't made isn't going to help you. But if God has promised, if you stand firm on his word, if you have a sure word from the Lord, then you can stand on that no matter what because the one who spoke will do what he has said and he is able to fully do what he has promised. So it's all about the character of God. And I say again, if if your faith starts to waver, then ask yourself, not, oh, where how am I going to conjure up more faith? Ask yourself, wait a minute, has God said this? Yes, God has said this. Now, will God lie? No, God won't lie. God is true. A great illustration again, um, one guy shared how when he was I think just out of school or so and started out in ministry he said to God um, but God your word promises that um, if I seek first the kingdom you will provide for all my needs so when are you going to start providing for all my needs and he said the answer that came to him was if your bank manager said to you 
Go seek the go seek first the kingdom of God, and I will take care of you. What would you do? He said I would go and seek first the kingdom of God. So it came to him. Do you trust your bank manager more than you trust me? You see, and that really is the issue, because if the bank manager said, "I will take care of you," you just go do your job. I'll take care of you. Then you're not going to say, show me the money first. Because you trust him. You say, I know. He, he's got the money and he's faithful. He'll keep his promise. And it's the same way with God. God is faithful. He's got much more money than the bank manager. We need to trust him. God is going to give it back to them a hundred times over. Mm. And it hasn't been a word from God to them, mm-hmm. but they will go and give. We had a, a mm. in the church in Greater. So they gave a piano, they gave all sorts of things. But they were actually giving their creditors money that they mm. were using to do that. They didn't pay their creditors, but they were giving to the church. Yeah, no, but, but that is just idolatry. That's what I'm saying. You, 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 people read something and they say, well, that must be a word from God and off they go. But they haven't sought God's face in what must they do. Yes. They they are giving with the purpose of getting, getting more yeah. back. They're not really yeah. giving. Yeah. They, they, they just say, well, this is a good investment for me to make. I'll give money to the church and then God's got to pay me they're back. Not and money that they're giving. Yeah. They're somebody else's money. Yes. No, that, that, that's not yeah. at all Right, that's not at all what it's about. You can't invent your own interpretation or say, I've got a thing. You say, you see, you can't say, I've got a thing by which I've got a lever on God. You can't say, I've got a thing by which I can just pull the string and then God will have to do. You can't say that because God is sovereign. The promises work out when you meet the premises. The promises work out when you actually do what the promise requires. And part of what the promise requires is doing it with the right motivation. Um, And then you find that his word is not dependent on circumstances whatsoever. But you can't, if you get into debt and say, okay, I'm not going to go gamble, I'm just going to give money to the church so money can come back so I can pay off my debts or something like that. That is misusing... um, that's trying to misuse God for your own ends. Because you see, the motivation there is not the glory of God. The motivation there is not even obedience to the word of God. The motivation there is, I think this might work for me, so I'm going to try this. And especially it's easy to try it with other people's money, isn't it? So, um, yeah, so definitely not that. Um, but when God has promised... When you stand firm on the promises of the word of God, God will do what he has promised because God is true. And Abraham had to patiently wait, but he did in the end obtain the promise. But he had to wait a long time. And we'll get back to that in Hebrews 11 because he really says, at some point Abraham realized it's not really about this earth. It's about the eternal inheritance.
But let's go on here in chapter 6, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves. You swear by someone who's greater, more important than yourselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. He says this settles everything. The oath settles everything. Now you must, you must understand the people to whom is writing this thought differently than the people of today. They did not go and sit in a church and put their hand on the Bible and say, so help me God, and they just lie through their teeth. I will remind you that there was a guy called Jephthah, a judge in the time of the judges. He made an oath to God that whatever comes out of my house, if you give me success in this battle, whatever comes out of my house, I will sacrifice it. And his daughter came out of his house. And he didn't think of not keeping Yourself. Today people say this and this and this. But in their mindset, when you promise something to God, you do it no matter what the cost. That is how seriously they took the idea of an oath. Um, the Gibeonites came to Joshua and the elders of Israel in uh, Joshua chapter 9, I think. And they tricked the elders. They pretended to be people from a far off country, but they were actually living in the land of Israel. And the elders swore to them. And then they found out that these guys are actually in the land of Canaan. And then the congregation was angry. But the elders said, because of the oath, we cannot attack them. We've made an oath before them. We, with then before God we cannot attack them. That's how seriously people in Bible times took an oath. It wasn't the glib thing that it is today. So so it's in that context which he is saying this. An oath is the end to the dispute. Now he says in the same way God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. God made an oath so that those who will inherit the promise might know the unchangeableness of God's purpose, might be doubly sure that's what he says in verse 18 that they might be doubly sure that God will do what he has said it's not only that God has made the promise that is reason enough because God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind Numbers 23.19 says God will not change his mind if God has said something that's good enough but, he says in this case, God not only promised, he even made an oath. Now the question is, what is the case? I don't think he's just referring back to that promise to Abram. He's actually referring back to something which he's already quoted. And... Um, it's in Psalm 110, verse 4. The writer to the Hebrews, I think, has quoted this before. But that's why I said, if you see this, it's beautiful. 
Psalm 110, I have told you, is the, is the one that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet, for your feet. It's a promise to Jesus Christ reigning over his enemies. Now listen to the wording of verse 4. We've had verse 4, you are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But listen to what it says. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hear that again. The Lord has done what? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, God has made an oath. Not only concerning Abram, God has made another oath. God has made an oath concerning Jesus. The Lord has sworn and even as, and will not change his mind. Jesus is the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that according to the order of Melchizedek we'll get to in chapter 7. But here is the thing. This is now tying back with what he was busy saying before he started warning these people. Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And God has sworn about this and has added he will not change his mind. So there is absolutely no question about this. Jesus is the one. He is the one forever. This is settled. No debate. No, absolutely no possibility of change. Indeed, God's purpose in this thing is totally unalterable. He says the unchangeableness of God's purpose. What is God's purpose? Not only that he would bless Abram and make him a father of many nations, but here, God's purpose. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus is high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is the great thing that you must see in this passage. This is why he's telling these people, cling to Jesus to the end. Because God has not only promised, God has sworn. And God has sworn by himself. And God will not change his mind about this. Jesus is the one. Have no doubt about Jesus, have no doubt about who the high priest is, have no doubt about who the one mediator is, Jesus is the one, it is through him that you will inherit the promises, it is through him that you will enter the kingdom, it is he and he alone that saves, he is the one, the appointed one, the anointed one, forever and ever. God will not appoint another one, God will not change his mind, God will not say, okay, I'm going to put another mediator there. No. Jesus is the one. He is the sole one for all eternity. He has been appointed by God with an un-
unchangeable purpose. God is not going to change his mind. God is not going to appoint someone else. Jesus is the one. This is what God has ordained. This is how it will be for all eternity. Forever. It's all settled. Jesus is the one. So he's saying then in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, both God's character and the fact that he has made an oath. It's doubly sure. He has made it doubly sure. It's totally impossible for God to lie in this matter. We, we can be absolutely sure about this. There should be no, no, no question or doubt about this. God has promised. God has sworn. God will not change his mind. This stands firm. This stands sure. No need to worry. No need to doubt. He says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The hope of heaven, the hope of glory, the hope of eternal life is set before us. And you can take hold of this hope. You need not doubt. You need not worry. Because God has told you how to inherit the promise. It's through Jesus Christ. He has told you Jesus is the one. And you need not doubt about this. If you've put your trust and your faith in Jesus, you need never be swerved. You need never go seek in other places. You need never go take out another insurance policy to make doubly sure. No, there's no need for that. Jesus Christ alone is more than enough because God has set this hope before us by the greatest possible thing he could ever do. He swore by himself. Jesus is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the one. You need no doubt. Just cling to Jesus. You have strong encouragement. God has promised. God is faithful. God cannot lie. And God has even sworn. So you have strong encouragement. Take hold of this hope. Believe in Christ. Cling to Christ to the end. Because Christ is the truth. The promise that God has made about Christ is the truth. He says, this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So this hope, what hope? The hope in Christ. The hope of Christ, the Savior of the world, risen from the dead, the Savior, the Mediator, the High Priest. This hope, the hope of the Gospel, we have as an anchor of the soul. What's the idea? When you feel like a little ship drifting around on all the storms of the ocean, there's an anchor, something solid that clings, that can't be moved firm or sure and steadfast. This anchor. What's this anchor? Not your church's doctrine. Not some touchy-feely experience. The truth that God has promised. This is the anchor 
that will hold. This anchor will not move. It will not break. No matter how bad the shaking, no matter how bad the storm on the ocean, this anchor holds. It's sure. It's steadfast. If you put your hope in this, you will not be disappointed. God says, I have laid in Zion a stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him shall not be disappointed. If you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, for forgiveness of sin, for eternal glory, you will not be disappointed. If you put your hope in him for health and wealth, you might be disappointed. And I think if God loves you, you will be disappointed. But if you put your hope in him for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins, for peace and reconciliation with God, you will not be disappointed. This anchor will hold even though all the storms break loose around you. Even though persecution and trouble comes because of the word, if you cling to Christ, you can be sure, you can be safe, you can be secure. Paul says, I think to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. And I am assured that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day. God knows whom he has believed. Oh, excuse me, Paul knows whom he has believed. His hope is in God, in the character of God. And he says, I know whom I have believed. My trust is in God. And God will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He says that in another place, the Lord will rescue me out of every evil plot and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul isn't saying God is going to keep me from persecution. Paul knows he's going to be persecuted. He says, but... God will rescue me from all of that. He will rescue me from every temptation to deny Him, to let go of the faith. He will keep my faith firm until the end. I know He will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom, even though they cut off my head. Because His trust is in the One who cannot lie. Listen, Abram didn't believe in the promises of God. He did believe the promises of God, but he believed in God. It's not putting your hope in the promises, it's putting your hope in the God who promised. And then you will find the promises true. It's about a person, it's about a being, it's about one with character. It's about trusting in the trustworthy one. It's not just taking words off a page and saying, oh, I believe the promise. Now God's got to give what the promise says. No, it's about trusting in the one who has promised. But the promise he has made is sure and this promise is our anchor. Our firm anchor which will not fail. And not only is this anchor sure and steadfast, he says this anchor enters within the veil. And he says this to start turning back to this whole idea of the high priesthood. 
this anchor enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is he saying? Not only is this promise sure and steadfast, this anchor goes within the veil. He's saying, this anchor goes into the very presence of God. This promise we have is like a, it's like a rope that has been thrown into heaven. It's not just anchored in the seabed, it's been thrown into heaven or a chain that's been anchored into heaven. And if you cling to this promise, it will take you all the way beyond death into eternal life, all the way into heaven, all the way into the presence of God. It's an anchor that enters within the veil. It goes into the Holy of Holies. It goes where man cannot go. It goes into God's very presence. And there it's anchored there, it's solid. And if you take hold of this hope, if you believe this promise, if you trust in God who has made this promise to the end, it will take you all the way there. It's a promise to join in the glory of God. It's a promise to enjoy the presence of God forever and ever, to look on His wonderful face for all eternity. Not to be busy with some ritual in a tent on earth. No, to enter into the very presence of God. To know Him and to enjoy Him forever. This is the hope that's set before us. This is where this promise, where the sure promise of Jesus, the high priest, will take you. And He says, Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Jesus has already ascended into heaven you might say big deal Uh, Jesus was in heaven before he came to earth yes Jesus as God was in heaven from all eternity but what has happened is after Jesus' humiliation after he took on human form he also ascended into heaven as a man he took his glorified body into heaven. He didn't leave his body on earth. He took a glorified resurrection body into heaven. And that's the promise for all true believers in Christ. We will sit with him in glory one day. And he has already gone there. And he goes to prepare a place for everyone who believes we already have a man in glory. If you are in Christ, you have a man in glory. Jesus, our high priest, has already entered heaven. He has already received the eternal inheritance. He has already entered the glory as a forerunner for us, as the one who has gone before, and he invites all of us to go with him. He promises that all of us will share his glory, will enter into his glory one day. But the big promise, the big encouragement is, we have one there already. Now, we have a high priest who is in the very presence of God. 
He's already entered the Holy of Holies for us. He stays there forever to intercede for us. And He can bring us there with Him. But Moses can't do that. The religions of the world can't do that. Churchianity can't do that. That's why your trust must be in Christ. In the one appointed high priest. He's the only one who has done that and he's the only one who can bring you there. And if you put your hope in anyone else, they're going to lead you to the pit of destruction and the eternal flames of hell. If you put your hope in anyone else but this Jesus Christ, then you're going to be disappointed because only one has entered the veil, only one has gone into heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. If you believe in Him until the end, if you persevere in faith in Him until the end, you will be with Him in heaven in glory forever. But if you let go of your faith in Him, if you let go of your trust in Him, you will miss heaven. And if you miss heaven, you go to hell. That's the only other alternative. Yes. So, the great encouragement is we have a man in glory. We have a man. Remember, he was tempted in every way just like we are, but he was without sin. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. We have a man there in glory who's been fully man, who's been tempted, who knows what it is to be bombarded with temptation who knows what it is to be persecuted by evil men, who knows what it is to be forsaken by your best friends, who knows what it is to do the right thing and everyone says, you shouldn't have done that. You know you're following God and everyone says, even the Christians say, oh, no, don't do that. He's been through all of that. He can sympathize with your weaknesses, with your struggles. But he's saying, cling to me, cling to Christ. Now, give you eternity with me. And you see, he's not making empty promises because he has already gone there. He's not saying, oh, believe in me and then one day we'll try and fight our way open to heaven. He says, I'm waiting for you there. Come to me, cling to me, follow me. He has entered for us. And he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get to which we will get to next. So people please, please. The logic is quite involved here, but I see if you see it, it's amazing. God has promised. And it's not only promised, he has sworn by himself. Jesus is the one. He is the high priest forever. So you have no doubt, no reason to doubt Jesus Christ. This is the one. Cling to Him. If you've not truly repented and believed in Him, do so now because God has said and will not change His mind. This is the one. If you don't like Jesus, tough luck for you because God loves Him. God has appointed him and God won't change. And if you have put your trust in him, cling to him. And when your faith seems all shaken up, 
Don't start looking at yourself and at your faith. Look at God who has promised. Look at the character of God. And that's why I so detest all this liberal theology of, yeah, you know, the Bible's just stories of men and all these things, because all that's about is saying to you, well, you can't really know what God has said, so you can't put your trust in anything. But God has spoken. God's word is sure, and what he has said he will do. So when you start doubting and start having issues, look for the answer in this place, the character of God. Is there a God who reigns over all? Is he able to do what he says? And will he do what he has promised? The answer is, there is a God. He is able to do whatever he wants. And he has promised certain things. And what he has promised, he will do. And the biggest promise of all, the, the big thing of the Bible is... Jesus Christ is the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The purposes of God all revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is all going to Ephesians 1 verse 9 or verse 10, the summing up of all things under one head, even Christ. That's the destiny of all things. It's all about Christ. So, if you are in Christ, then even if you can't work out how the end times are going to work, if you are in Christ, you'll be with Him in glory. That's all that matters. So, whatever you do, don't let go of Christ. And then once again, if you are in Christ, proclaim His excellencies. Shine forth His His glory. Speak about Him. Make much of Him. And tell other people... Listen, Christ is the only one. And show the people to Christ. 